Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Well, an invitation to speak about the glory of Christ was hard to resist, as I'm sure it would have been for all of you. And I found myself drawn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me read that once again. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But I woke in the middle of the night and... um, I think I'd been a bit anxious because I spoke on this a couple of weeks ago and Peter Comont was there and I had a feeling Peter was going to be here this evening. And I thought Peter would have heard all the jokes before. So Peter, this is uh, evidently the Lord doesn't want you to hear exactly the same message again and probably everyone else not either. I found myself drawn back to a short verse which is actually saying much the same in Old Testament terms. And we will certainly have a look at 2 Corinthians 3.18, but perhaps to get this Old Testament sort of trailer for it. And it's in Isaiah chapter 33. If you could click all the way back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17 Well, there is the promise that the the people of Israel who are going to go through exile and judgment are nevertheless going to be delivered from their oppressors. Verse 17, this promise. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. I've been reading a bit of a Roman Catholic theologian a lot of people rave about. Hans Urs von Balthasar. I wish I had a name like that. I wish I'd have gone far further in theology and life. He's, he's great, actually. The extraordinary thing about this guy is that three-quarters of the time, he kind of reads like a banner of truth book. And then um, the other quarter of the time, it's all about Mary and the mass and the church and stuff. And you, you kind of, well, it's not my, my thing theologically, but the good stuff is very good indeed. And when one of the most often quoted passages, apparently from his bigger thing, which I haven't read yet, he says, before the beautiful... No, not really before, but within the beautiful. The whole person quivers. He not only finds the beautiful moving, rather he experiences himself as being moved and possessed by it. God has put beauty in our world for a purpose. It's there. And our different ways, we all respond to it. And it's not just what we would classically think of as the touchy-feely, arty, crafty, farty sort of people. 
who immediately think, yeah, yeah, beauty, great, and the rest of it. Actually, all the rest of us are as well. So I, I work in Cambridge, in the centre of Cambridge, and uh, most of my congregation are highly rational, cerebral people. Uh, many of them are scientists and mathematicians. But actually, when you get talking to them, what fires them is a sense of the beauty of the mathematical equations. I mean, I have to have a bit of a stretch of the imagination to get there. But it does. And the engineers as well, and the people apparently... Uh, <coughs> Uh, computer code has its own kind of beauty if it's done well, a kind of elegance. And almost everyone, of course, has something out in the natural world that grabs them in the way that, that this, this chap, his name I can't quite say right, says. We don't just find the beautiful moving. We experience ourselves as being moved and possessed by it. One of the doctrines of Scripture that is just so true and so wonderful is that God himself is beautiful. And he expresses that by creating beauty. To show us some aspect of his own beauty. So that we would realise just how beautiful he is. Now we, of course, prefer the beauty of created objects. Whether it's computer code or a mountain or whatever, or a person to God himself, and that's what sin is. I read a quote this morning. It's a slightly exaggerated one from, I can't remember, Simone Veal. I never know quite who she is, but she's had great quotes that other people have, and I make them. Um, and she said that the essence of sin is gazing at the wrong thing. Now, I think that's overstating it. Sin is described in many ways in Scripture, but a part of sin is gazing on the wrong thing. And allowing a created beauty, which, which is intended to delight us and show us the beauty of God, allowing that to become ultimate in our lives. And that, of course, had happened to the people of Israel in Isaiah's time, and they preferred the idols and natural things. And in the midst of all the denunciations of their idolatry, all the predictions of judgment, there comes this, as well as many other promises, but this very special promise. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. I'm not going to take time proving this. I think the New Testament writers often quote the Old Testament without always showing their working, and that's my justification. Um, but this is about Jesus. And Jesus himself does the same. We don't always have to, have to show all the working. We know it's there. This is about Jesus, isn't it? And it's a promise for us. I just want to think with you for a little bit about the beauty of Christ. And then about seeing the beauty of Christ. And seeing the beauty of Christ in our own lives. Every year at Christmas, or in Advent really, I, I try to do a bit of reading on the doctrine of Christ. I really have the most dreadfully sort of loose mind uh, for lots of things. And I, I always had this kind of fear that if someone really quizzed me about my Christology, I would give a heretical answer. <laughs> and I, I kind of get retuned again in December and think I'd just about get it right. And then I kind of lost it. And it's like a piano tuner coming once a year. And I try to do this retuning um, because I think it's important to get it right. And this year I, I read one or two things. But I found myself going to the first volume of John Owen, the Puritan writer, uh, which is about Christ. Essentially, there's two things in, in volume one. 
And the first of them is on the person of Christ. And uh, in his very Puritan way, and, and I know he's a peculiar writer, most of the time it reads like a very bad translation from the Latin, and he's, some of it's almost incomprehensible. But what he does in that book is to show the sheer magnificence of Christ. And I'm using a different word there. I've been saying beauty. Uh, magnificence is my summary of it. I just read it. I was thinking, yeah, and he's showing it here, 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 and here. Just how magnificent Jesus is. The word glory is used as well, and they're all synonyms, really, as we think of him. Let's dwell on that for a moment. The second person of the Trinity from all eternity. Perfect, infinite, timeless being. The perfect relationship of love with Father and Spirit. How beautiful that is. The decision to create. To make time, to make us, to make a universe. The template coming from the mind of God, the word of God, the beauty of Christ revealed in the created order. And then we think of Jesus himself, his, his birth, the, the magnificence of the kind of theological engineering of the incarnation. Owen is just, he's so helpful on this. He just says, this is the most incredible thing. God, the infinite being, should become man. We gaze on that and we see something beautiful in the extreme. Balthazar is very similar in a slightly different idiom and just talks about how incredible it is that absolute infinite beings should be joined to humanity. I mean, can any of us get our head around that? Eternity coming down into time. It's mind-boggling and it's beautiful. And the life of Christ, and here we're just in the pages of the Gospels, on every page there is this simply magnificent and beautiful human being, all the very best qualities, perfectly revealed. Without any compromise of anything, we, we find it so hard to be simultaneously compassionate and righteous, and we go on one side or the other, Jesus gets it consistently right. And he's there for the poor and the downtrodden. He's coming to them in love. Look at the sheer beauty of it. And of course his death, his voluntarily chosen death upon the cross. And in John's Gospel it's fascinating how the glory of Christ is linked to the kind of darkness of the cross. It's as though in many ways the supreme revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is as his face gets smashed. And as his life is extinguished, as his humanity is crushed, as he absorbs the wrath of God against sinners. There is, there is beauty in that, if we understand it. The beauty of the risen Lord in the resurrection, who becomes the, the blueprint of the new physics, with an indestructible body that we will share. That itself is a miracle of divine engineering, and there is a beauty there. And what do we see in all of this? Well, this is an adaptation of a phrase from Martin Luther that I found in something Carl Truman had read. God's beauty is to seek out what is not beautiful and create beauty there. Because we see the beauty of Christ in the beauty of his church and it's spread. You will view a land that stretches afar and at least one of the New Testament ways that uh, is fulfilled is in the spread of the church through the 
through the world and the transformation of people who themselves become beautiful. But of course it looks forward to the return of Christ as well. That astonishing revelation of total beauty which we will see with our eyes. The beauty of Christ. But the second part of volume one focuses not just on the the magnificence of the person and work of Christ. It's then really a two or three hundred page exposition simply of 2 Corinthians 3.18. In terms of our perception and reception and enjoyment of the beauty of Christ. The impact of the beauty of Christ in the life of the believer. And again, Carl Truman knows more about Owen than most people. He, he suggests in the lecture I heard that actually Owen is unusual among Protestant theologians, certainly conservative and reformed theologians, in majoring on the vision of Christ as the centre of the Christian life. Russell Common to find that, the, the idea of the, the, the vision of God, and you can find it in the uh, early church fathers, and you can find it elsewhere, it's, but it's somehow... It wasn't a big feature in many of the reformers, but it is in Owen. And he speaks of contemplating the glory of Christ as the secret to life and peace by taking our hearts away from undue regard to things below, which entrance us, we might add, and worry us and anger us. He goes on, a defect in this makes many of us strangers to a heavenly life. And means that we live beneath the level of spiritual refreshment and satisfaction that the gospel offers us. This is how the image of God is renewed in us and we are made like our older brother. He says one thing that Jesus is beautiful in all the ways I've rather inadequately described and more. But it's seeing the beauty of the king. That's the problem for us. And of course, naturally, there is a veil there. You'll know as well as I do that the the language of the veil, the image of the veil in 2 Corinthians 3 is is a tricky thing to understand properly. But what is clear is that for unbelievers, there is a veil that prevents us from seeing. And of course, Isaiah was aware of that in his day as well. And it's one of the fascinating things in Isaiah 53. Uh, to see the, uh, right, the, the imagined writer there, Isaiah and others who are trying to do evangelistic work and who were just saying, no one believed us. But then they join in with the others and saying, well, we, we saw him, but there was no beauty there. There was nothing there. And by the time you work through into the middle of Isaiah 53, of course, they do understand the veil has been lifted. That's us if we're believers. Among the wonderful things that have happened to us, if we are believers, is that God has come in and lifted the veil so that we can see that when Jesus is smashed up on the cross, that is actually the most beautiful sight we can imagine, because it's his death, lovingly and willingly, in our place. I think it was on um, one of those radio Programs. I think it was, um, I'm sorry, I had a clue actually on Radio 4, which some of you may listen to. Um, well, they, uh, the, the challenge was on this radio panel game, you had to try and summarize a book um, in, the, in a lyric from a pop song, and there were various challenges given. And someone said, Right, you've got to do the Bible, and my heart sort of sank. 
But one of them, I don't know whether they pre-warn people on those kind of things or not. I think they must do, but who knows? Perhaps it's best not to uh, to be too suspicious. And one of them, I don't know who it was, um, I don't think any of them are Christians, uh, was given the Bible. And what he came up with was that old lyric from the monkeys. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer that he adapted it. Then I saw his face. Now I'm a believer. Which oh, is great. <laughs> you know, this, this program, which is really on the margins of um, suitability at half past six at night when there are kids around, you know, sometimes. I mean, it's just oh, a great thing. There are lots of ways of summing up the Bible. That's not a bad one, is it? The veil has been lifted. If we're a believer, it's been lifted, and we've been able to see that there is beauty in the face of Christ and in his work. And that beauty has started to do its work in us. As Balthazar said, before the beautiful, within the beautiful, the whole person quivers. He not only finds the beautiful moving, rather he experiences himself as being moved and possessed by it. And that is what we've been made for, to be moved and possessed by the beauty of Christ. But we have to be straightforward about the difficulties and limitations of that, where we're at right now in our lives. And the New Testament is very realistic about this, I think. Because, of course, we don't physically see or sense Jesus. And none of our other four senses connect with him either. We see by faith, and that is dif- different and difficult because we are physical beings and we operate through our five senses. We do have this sort of sixth sense that's been activated, the sense of faith by which we receive him, but it's difficult and it's, it's an effort to do it much of the time. So in 2 Peter uh, 1, and, uh, sorry, 1 Peter uh, 1 and verse 8, there's a, there's a lovely account of how this, this feels. And Peter's writing to people who, unlike him, haven't seen Jesus. And he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We don't see fully now. And we have to battle to see as much as we can now, too. Back to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. I'm sure you'll know about the controversies about that word contemplate and the NIV footnote has reflect and I don't know, it's one of these things where I try and ask one of the clever people either in person or in the commentaries to try and work it out. But I think these days most of them reckon that this is about seeing something indistinctly. It's as though looking at a mirror which is angled so you see a reflection. It's not your own reflection, that wouldn't work. But it's seeing a reflection in a not very good mirror. Mirrors in the ancient world weren't up to much. Of course, that would fit the reality of what we face. That we do see him truly. We do see him wonderfully. But we don't see him in the way that we will one day. There is a gap. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. And the hymn writer gets the contrast, and that's helpful. 
So we've got these two things, the beauty of Christ at the centre of our transformation as Christians and as people. The beauty of the Lord, which our spiritual eyes have been opened to see, and the limitations of this life and the distractions that we face. Where does this leave us? I hope it leaves us with a sense of realism, on the one hand, but also a sense of invitation and possibility on the other. Because if we read what Paul says here, this is about something that really does happen and really does change people. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. What are the the values of our age? What do people put their hope in? It's a very knowledge-based society, where the acquisition of knowledge is seen as having traction. With that, there's a lot about management and technique and about analysing things and planning things. Many of us as Christian workers have got sucked into that, those overlapping trio of values. And we see those as the way that we're going to get traction in our spiritual lives and in ministry. And I think in our society, where it's at in, at the moment, the default for many of us has shifted, or the sense has shifted, if I can get the metaphor right, so that we believe that the more time we spend, spend thinking through issues and talking about them, and the more technology we can somehow amass and deploy, and the, the techniques we can find, and the more knowledge we can get, the more our Christian lives and churches and ministries will flourish. I'm caricaturing a little bit, but I certainly recognise that set of values at work in my own heart and in my own church and, and around me. To put it another way, it, it's possible that in my church there's someone who just spends too much time praising the Lord on their own and praying and contemplating and is neglecting other things. And it's possible that in the minister's fraternals there's someone that I go to there's someone like that. And it's possible that in a conference like this there's someone like that. And actually what you need to do is to invest in some more books and you need to learn some more techniques and you need a bit more technology and you need to spend more time in planning meetings. (coughs) And if that is you, then you must do those things. But as I said, and I hope this wasn't a chiding way to my church recently, I haven't met you. Perhaps in a different part of the world, there would be many such people. That's not, I think, what any of us are at. And here we have this this wonderful invitation to return to a biblical norm, to renorm ourselves. And to think about how we can engage with Christ personally, more thoroughly, and more transformingly. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory.
a wonderful picture again from this, this Roman Catholic guy I keep quoting. He says, Faith's table is always laid. Whether the invited guest sits down or stays away with a thousand excuses and pretexts. The entire objective world of God's word, the world of God's love, which comes near to us, revealing itself so we can understand or grasp it, is always there. Faith's table is always laid for you. If you will exercise that faith and receive its spiritual meat and drink. He goes on, the man who knows of the fountain of God's truth and love, which is continually welling up at the centre of his being, will feel compelled to keep returning thither to cleanse, renew and refresh his whole being. What can we do? Well, one thing is we can stop using created beauty as a substitute for God himself. Though we're so often tempted by beautiful things on earth, we believers have been claimed by being far more beautiful and lovely than anything in creation. But that doesn't mean to say we reject and rubbish it. We enjoy natural and created and other kinds of beauty as a window onto the beauty of God. The gospel doesn't shut down our imaginations, but it fires and fuels them and directs them to the God who embodies beauty. Now, I've forgotten to make a note in my notes, but uh, having heard recently about a pastor not far from Cambridge who was fired for plagiarism, I think I should say that some of this I think is quoted, and I can't remember whether it was a book on Jonathan Edwards or something by Sam Storms, but I, I put that disclaimer out, lest uh, you should have a word with my elders and get me fired. What does it mean, though, to grow in the contemplation of Christ and his beauty? On the one hand, there is a passive receptiveness, and on the other hand, there is an act of seeking. That's because our relationship with God is a relationship, and in all relationships, that's how it works. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, leading us into holiness, leading us into a greater understanding of Christ, leading us into more assurance of being sons and daughters of the living God. And the words that Paul uses for that are about being led by the Spirit, which is something we receive. I wonder if we make enough space and whether we listen hard enough and are conscious enough of the gracious ways that the Holy Spirit, because he tends not to override everything in a great kind of cloudburst, but the gracious, quiet ways in which he seeks to draw us into a simple appreciation of Christ and into more thinking about Christ, and whether we even actually create the spaces for that to happen in us. There's a great bit in the own book where he says the problem here is not just quality, it's just quantity. We just don't think about Jesus. I read that and I thought, oh, it's Started to try and clear more space, started trying to make my default thoughts turn to Christ, even to incidents in the Gospels more rather than just turning to other things or doing what we all do when we have a spare moment, which is to start playing on our phones. It does seem to me we can actively put ourselves in the right places to be enticed by the beauty of Christ and to meditate on it. 
We can ask Christ to do that. Just invite him. Say, Lord, I want to see more of you. He's promised that when we seek after him, we will find him. Then there are active things that we can do, which are based on the nitty-gritty and the difficulty and the pains of this life. To try to make a practice of turning away from a sense of failure or inadequacy or emptiness or pain or irritation, of owning and recognising those things, because to deny them doesn't help us very much, and then looking from them to Christ. I find this so helpful and I'm feeling totally inadequate for some, uh, some bit of ministry, which happens uh, on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes I, I just feel too empty to go up and preach or lead a service. Or I just feel kind of dried out or distracted. I don't instantly try to heal that, though there are ways that one can, can work on one's inner feelings, and many of them are good. But to turn from that to Christ, I, I look at my own emptiness and I look at his fullness. And try to let my eyes see the beauty of the Lord in contrast to my own beauty. And somehow that's transforming. And then in the darkest moments, to remember that the ugliness which we see inside has not put him off. It's a great quote from, I think, Matt Chandler. Someone tweeted or something and I picked up somehow. Maybe you've heard it too. Love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. Love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you, and I'm staying. The beauty of Christ is something which is like a kind of benign invasion into what is not beautiful. And when we feel at our most ugly, we have a wonderful connection because Jesus says, yes, that's precisely where I, where I came and why I was so uglified upon the cross. And then we need to recognise and nurture our ache for the ultimate beauty that will come when we see him with our own eyes. And just to, to recognise that there's a gap, there's a difference. We don't see him. We don't see his beauty as fully as we will. We see it purely with the eyes of faith now. That's all, all that we can. One day it will be different. And just to know that it's coming makes such a difference. I've got so many uh, older people in the church now, and they're, they're creaking, some of them groaning. Some of them, it's just incredible that they're there the next Sunday. I mean, you just kind of wonder what on earth is holding them together. Um, but it, it's just a beautiful thing to see them and to, to say, how's your soul? And I thought, oh, my soul's fine. I really like to be with the Lord. And what sustains them, as it were, inside is the thought that one day they will see his face in all of its beauty. Now, you may be thinking, oh, I've sort of heard this before and it hasn't done much good. We can get cynical about the possibilities for growth in the Christian life. But, you know, Jesus is not cynical about you. And he's not cynical about what he can do in your life and for you. 
And the mysteries of providence and how, how God's sovereignty interacts with our responsibility, I can't solve all of this on in this area. I know I can't. But it does seem to me that biblically there is a relationship between how much we seek after God and how much we know of God. And that God reacts in real time to us. When we do something that grieves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit withdraws. When we do something which quenches the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is quenched, like a candle flame being gutted out by by something. And there are bigger theological questions about divine sovereignty and purpose. And of course, anything that good happens in us does come from God. But there is also this dynamic of responsiveness and responsibility. And I think many of us have put glass ceilings on what we think we can see of Christ in this life. And so we turn to the, the management and the acquisition of knowledge and the techniques and the technology. I made a slightly gratuitous reference to the, the running I started to do, which I rather amazed myself, really. My wife can't believe it. She thought having a kind of vaguely athletic husband was the last thing that was going to happen. But um, it's been good. It's been good in many ways. And it's, it's been fascinating, really. And just in this last year, um, I, I've had someone who sort of adopted me in an informal way. And he, he's not really a coach, but he, he sort of coached me. And it, it's been fascinating because he has believed in me more than I believe in myself. And he said, if you do this in training, you'll be able to do that time in a race. I hadn't really believed it. But I've done what he said. But he's gone further than that. He's come with me to the race. So there was this race around this grotty old airfield near Stratford-on-Avon on a Saturday. And uh, he said, I'll drive you over. Not only will I drive you over, I'll pace you. Which means that he would run around with me the whole way. And it was a cold, wet, windy day. He did all the drive. He ran with me. And all the way, he was telling me how fast to go. He was pacing. All the way, he believed I could do something. I really genuinely didn't think I could achieve the time, which, in the end, with his help, I got. I was, I was over the moon. I gave him quite an expensive bottle of brandy, which he, he didn't really want. He was, he was, um, well, he said he was a bit embarrassed by that. It was an act of huge generosity. But it was also something which spoke to me about the Lord Jesus Christ in my life who also believes I can become something and know something of him beyond the glass ceiling level I set for myself. And that is true of all of us. But not only does he set us the target, he comes with us into what we need to do, the things we need to shed, the things we need to change, the things we need to give up in order to have a better vision of himself. And he's encouraging us by his spirit all the way round. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Wherever you are, there is more of Christ for you. And Christ himself is not a theoretical being far away. Christ himself is not just a set of doctrines which you can explain and a sort of salvation which is just analysed and then described purely in words. This is a dynamic of the living Christ living with us, present with us, whose presence we can experience more of albeit it varies from time to time, and sometimes he even withdraws a bit to remind us that it comes from outside and not from within. Wherever you are at, 
This promise is for you. Your eyes will see the beauty of the king. And there is more of that beauty for you to see in this life, even if finally it will only come after death. Let's pray together. You are with us, Lord Jesus Christ, by your spirit. You're present in your word. You are really here. With the eye of faith, that sixth sense which you've implanted and developed within us, we would open ourselves to see you in your beauty, your glory, your magnificence. Oh Lord, we say with the old writer, show me thy face on transient gleam of loveliness divine. I will never think or dream of other love so far. Or lesser lights will darken quite, or lesser beauties wane. The beautiful of earth will scarce seem beautiful again. How we long for more of you. How we long to become more like you by gazing upon you and thinking of you and experiencing the transformation your spirit brings through that. And we thank you that that is what you want. For your name's sake. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.